0: Hello, and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 398. My name is Minter Dial, and I'm your host for this podcast. This week's interview is a very special one. It's with my friend Mitch Joel, who was my first ever guest, and who accepted to return for this 10-year anniversary episode of my podcast. Mitch is an investor, author, speaker and brilliant decoder of the future. His two books, Six Pixels of Separation and Control-Alt-Delete, have been both deeply influential in my life. He's an active blogger and one of the original pioneers in podcasting. And in this conversation with Mitch, we discuss the importance of art, fiction, music, and comics. We look at the noxious issue of shame, take perspective on the last decade in the midst of this pandemic, and zoom in on how consumer behaviors and habits have changed. We also explore how communication has changed and look at what deregulation of the big tech companies could look like. You'll find all the show notes on mintradial.com as usual. Please consider to drop in your rating and don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Jolly, Mitch, Joel, how <laughs> lovely to have you on the show yet again. I say yet again. Uh, it's only been nine years since the second time, and holy smokes, ten years since the first time. And when I say the first time, it was actually my first time. So you were my virgin podcast guest, and you've been so gracious to accept to come on on this tenth year anniversary. How the heck?
1: Is Mitch? I'm doing great. I'm shocked to hear that you've been doing this for 10 years. It seems like yesterday. And it only seems like yesterday because I think I've been doing it for like 15 years or something like that. Genuinely doing fine. I mean, as we discussed prior to recording, I haven't been to war. I haven't had much suffering in my life. I have, uh, especially in this context of day and age, very privileged life. And just rolling with the punches, as one does, as we sit here during a pandemic where we have no idea if we're at the beginning, middle or end of it, even though we've been at it for a long time.
0: Exactly. We were just talking, as you said, about going to war and so on. And sometimes it's really useful to know that life could be worse and put things into perspective. But at the same time, it can't necessarily diminish people's experiences today. I mean, it certainly doesn't help if you've got someone who's been killed by the virus or are suffering from depression. Just because others had it worse doesn't mean you get better.
1: That's been the biggest challenge of the pandemic, which is this mindset of, well, at least this isn't happening. But when you look at what is happening, it's very real. And it's experienced by you as an individual. I'm experiencing this with a family. I'm experiencing this with personal change and stress. I'm experiencing it in my own cataclysmic way because I've never had to face down the barrel of a gun like this before. I've had challenges for sure, but one where everybody is feeling it and it's hard to define or frame makes it really challenging. There's no doubt. So I can count my blessings while at the same time being completely miserable.
0: <laughs> <laughs> One of the things you do, I, I notice, it seems anyway, is you go for morning walks on the lovely Westmount Hill, which I know so well. And, and uh, I don't know how often you do it, but I, I love it when you post your photograph and have that view of the town, of beautiful town of Montreal. How? What sort of things are you doing to try to to keep up with it, keep yourself in good shape?
1: Well, I was doing the walks before. I do try to go every day. It doesn't happen every day. We happen to be recording this on a Monday, which is a day that I have two very early morning radio hits. And usually I'll scoot out after for about an hour to do that. But just weather, rain. Yeah, I'm not one of those. It has to happen every day. David Sedaris tracking on the Fitbit type of thing. But um, so that's part of it. But the truth is that The thing, like my practices for mindfulness are things that I have been doing and deploying for years, whether it's following Julia Cameron and the artists way morning pages, whether it's using headspace, whether it's going for a walk, whether it's just running a life in general, which I've done forever, that has those moments for myself. I think from a very young age, I was very fascinated or wanted the ability to just say, I'm going to get up and go to the comic book store right now because I feel like it. And I've built a life around that terrible habit, <laughs> which is terrible in the sense of it's it's me running my life, but it's not terrible in the sense of having ownership over your time and making your decisions.
0: It's a sense of agency. I can do it and I do it, and I choose to do it, and that gives me a sense of meaningfulness,
1: whatever the activity itself is. Yeah, and non-sequential. I mean, I might go for an hour walk later. I might listen to a podcast. I might listen to an audiobook, I might listen to music. That music may or may not be heavy. It may be weird. It may have vocals in it. It may not. I don't put a lot of pressure on the systematic behavior of it but rather the satiating aspect of it does it work in the moment for me that's basically it you who
0: were a music journalist and a you know obviously inveterate blogger but and you just talked about enjoying comic books i (laughs) I had a long conversation with a journalist friend of mine in india when i say long it was two hours we we were talking about the the exceptional benefits of a TikTok that allows for people in remote villages to connect with other people around the world who are also feeling isolated and not just because of pandemic stuff, but also because, for example, they may be ostracized in their conservative town for a certain way of thinking or a certain type of sexuality and so on, and they can connect to other people. So. In as much as watching a 15-second meme on TikTok is trivial, reading a comic book is trivial, listening to music is trivial, there's a, there's a a wonderful resource and energy within them.
1: No art, no life, Minter. You know that better than anyone else. No art, no life, no culture, no life. I would never diminish the power of a comic book, not just because I'm a reconnected collector as I was when I was a kid. I've reconnected only recently. But when you dive in deep and you take a look at the art, the storytelling, the arc, the heroes, the protagonists, the antagonists, it's inspiring. It's I find art very inspiring and it comes in a myriad of ways for me. I'm quick to know what I don't like. I'm quick to know what I do like, but I don't judge the like of it. I'm as proud to say that I love cheesy hair metal music from the 80s as I am to talk about the strangest of jazz forms that I like as I am to admit that I love the new Invincible Hulk series and comic books. Mortal Hulk. That, sorry, I should say because <laughs> any comic book nerd would have stomped me right
0: there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you notice I didn't. I am no, such not no, qualified. It. But moving um, on, moving on. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> in, in, in an interesting thing that I tried to reinsert into my life, you talked about comic books and recollecting, reconnecting, and recollecting them. I, in my last book, I talked about empathy and one of the ways to improve hone your empathic muscle is to read fiction and to to check out stories as opposed to like this oh we've got to be super effective super efficient in all our marketing efforts and and get read the next business book and god knows another leadership book and all this other stuff whereas i've been willingly adding fiction books into my reading list that are out of my comfort zone. I'm reading a, 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 a like a, a woman uh, a lady who wrote this book. It's a very much a sort of a romance thriller, typical female model, a female um, book, if you will, quote unquote, but I mean, you know, really living into it and, and trying to figure out the different feelings through it. And so is that, I mean, that sounds like something similar, just in a different way.
1: It's a different way. I struggle with fiction, I always had. Um... When I read fiction, it tends to be short story-based and it's quite infrequent. But I do like my nonfiction to be varied. So right now I'm reading Jerry Seinfeld, is this anything? And yeah, it's another white guy, there's no doubt about it. But I'm learning a lot about structure and writing and words and phrasings because of the way he writes, which is basically his bits or his jokes you see something different than when he says it on stage. I've been reading a lot of nonfiction about, in particular, the entire area around Black Lives Matter. I've read a couple of things. I've listened to probably more podcasts than books I've read, only because I am completely ignorant to it, uh, not, not by any other sort of... A reality than I just was, and when all of this stuff continues to erupt, and you think to a to a certain perspective that I'm not like that, I'm not racist. I I I love it all. I don't see color. I don't see sexuality or gender. In reading the stories, you realize the system that you're in, and you know for me. One of the illuminations came because I sit as a public trustee for the the West Mountain Public Library here. It's like a board position type of thing. And in one of the books, I believe it might have been How to Be Anti-Racist by Abraham X. Kendi. He talks about how if you were holding these meetings at like 11 p.m. on a Thursday, that's a racist meeting. And you would think, "What? what does that mean? But it is true that to a certain degree, you are holding a meeting at a time and place when a certain aspect of majority of a certain type of person could never attend it or be involved in that meeting. And so for me, it's been a really interesting journey. And I question a lot of things. I question the fact that when I get asked to be on a podcast like this, I'm like, Oh, here we go. Two more middle-aged white guys going at it, trying to be woke, trying to be this. So. I, I've been struggling a lot with that, with how to learn and also how to learn and being accepting of my mistakes because I make them put my foot in my mouth, say the wrong thing at the wrong time. I struggle with how to learn from that. I struggle with the words I'm about to say with it. Um, But I think that that is to whatever the fiction is doing for you, the nonfiction is doing to me in that Mm. in that case.
0: That we, I want to get into, let's say, Black Lives Matter in, in a later moment.
1: In I don't the know much about it other than I need to learn a lot about it. So, but we can
0: Yeah, you'll see, you'll see. Um, I feel like one of the things that Black, White, whomever is, is speaking, the one of the things that our society uh, is struggling with is the art of conversation, the ability to have profound and different conversations. What I mean by that is that we can have different opinions. And the second challenge that I see is that it, it's hard to express contrary opinions, especially if they're not of the, the lineage, that's the appropriate lineage to use the word woke. And, and yeah. so the challenge is, how do we listen, give ourselves the time to express ourselves and listen to what the other one is saying without the need to interrupt.
1: Well, it's interrupt, and it's also teachable moments. And what I've discovered in my journey is most people don't want to teach. They want to shame or call out. And I think Kendy said it, and maybe I'll just repeat it or, or paraphrase it, but shame is a terrible teacher. If you're going to shame me for doing something I might have said and hoping that was said, with a good intention, but a non-understanding of how it can be interpreted as a microaggression or whatever. Shaming me is going to make me hesitant to correct and actually learn. It's shame is just not, I mean, who think about all the leadership work you've done? Is it great to shame the employees? You know, sometimes it works, Stick and carrot. You could make some arguments there. It, It doesn't work for me. So these conversations are super important. I want to have these conversations, but I also don't want to be shamed because that is my own insecurity. I want to learn and appreciate the way in which I'm being taught and learned. Because if we think about life and where we've grown the most, it's been from our most tragic of mistakes, but it's not necessarily the part where we as individuals have dusted ourselves off and gotten back up. It's been the person who was standing there next to you when you got up and helped you on the path to improvement. And so there are, are some fantastic people who, who do this in my life. And then on the other side, I see it happening to friends or sometimes even myself online where it's almost like they don't want to teach. They simply want to call out shame or to a certain degree uh, look more woke, be right. And I don't know if the if the purpose of, of this is finding the right versus changing the perspective. I think changing perspectives and attitudes and how people feel will be more important than someone being right. I could be wrong, though.
0: <laughs> Self-righteousness and humiliation don't seem like a course for a good change.
1: Yeah, and I don't know that that's the intent of it. I think the intent of it is probably more aligned with me, which is, can we bring this out and put this on the table so that we can all look at and understand the different perspectives that people have of it. But just because it's presented that way is not how it's always received. Mm -hmm. This is the email paradox. Nobody reads emails, the way in which you intended to write it. They read emails based off of the moment they receive it and how they feel. And so if they're feeling particularly vulnerable or, or issue or have an issue, it's, it's going to be a tough email to read, even if the intent was very kind and generous. So this is the dynamic of conversation as well. But I do agree with you that I've been having these conversations for decades. So my passion, when people say to me, what do you really collect? I tell them I collect conversations. And I find that the discourse is getting tougher and tougher. It's fine to walk on eggshells. It's fine to be more careful with your words and to think about how others might interpret them, based off of them not being like you. But it does create to it does create speed bumps. It creates speed bumps and flow. And I think that that's not necessarily a bad thing either. I mean, this is the so, grapple that we all have to grapple with.
0: There's certainly a, a, a nuance element between one side and the other but at the same time if we are constantly worried and fretting about the meaning of every word taken out of context the chances are that we'll start to lose who we are internally
1: yeah yes and no we have an amazing capacity to grow and it's an amazing opportunity and moment in time to prove it (laughs) Mm. are we up for the challenge i don't know i mean Mm. i hope so i hope so because i actually like these conversations and i like mentoring advising and being mentored and advised by people who are not at all like me fully realizing that i grew up in a massive bubble that was very very homogenous but i'm not everybody and i i can't always understand their perspectives where they come from how hurt they are or how empowered they may be hmm. so you you grapple with that but you're right that over the course of my career i have always been fascinated with others hmm. others other perspectives other stories other ways to do things and open to being challenged on my own preconceived notions as well as my own prejudices so hmm. it makes for an interesting life it's why I love the format of podcasting so much because it's not that was Minter Dial, the author of let's, you know, let's let's go to a break and come back. So
0: yeah, it's out there. You can hear uh, hesitations in the voice, uh, emotions are, as these words are coming out into little earbuds wherever you're walking, <laughs> you can inevitably hear little things. We're quite sophisticated in our way to decode the word from the
1: intention. And we are paying more attention overall. Smart people are paying more attention. They're trying to understand which words are triggers, which words are microaggressions, which words are the best words to use, the context by which we use them, who is around the table, who is in the earbud. That's a good thing. Because we're all critics. I use the word sort of a lot, apparently. I didn't know this until I saw a couple of... Transcripts. Well, forget transcripts. I saw uh, some reviews on, on, on Apple Podcast, and I never knew I did it. And it's been only a couple months and I still do it. Not as much, I hope, but I pay a lot of attention to it. And that slows me down because I'm subconsciously saying, don't say sort of, sort of, sort of, sort of, don't say it. I'll take notes and do it, but it's not my natural flow. And I've been doing it for so long that that creates a slowness and apprehension, which changes my style and changes my format. So always learning, always trying to figure out where are those areas that require improvement, especially the ones that you're shocked to see because you never knew you had them. Like when I say sort of all the time, which I will probably do continuously now for the rest of the show. So there you go.
0: (laughs) Well, the little ticks we have, Yendi, my wife, will note when i'm doing an on-screen presentation certain things i do and that just it bugs her immensely so she reminds me and then i you know the benefit of being in a zoom is that we can see each other and so you can see yourself doing it oh my god remind myself when you're on stage you don't have the exact mirror showing you're touching your chin again or whatever the tick might be
1: my wife has those nuances too they're mostly revolve (laughs) around me just the fact that i'm breathing or chewing (laughs) i'm I'm kidding or
0: snoring um so mitch we we were first on this podcast in november 2010 where we're now 10 years later you of course had been podcasting five years before that and longer in the tooth but i wanted to ask you how would you describe the last 10 years
1: i mean it's a tough question to answer when we sit Eight, nine months into a global pandemic. Exactly. Because it feels like there was a world before and a world after. My dreams are so strange. I know we talk a lot about COVID dreams. My dreams are what my reality was. Every night I go to bed, I'm in a city that I know, but you know how it is in dreams. It's like you know the city, but you don't know where you are. You know where stuff is, but you don't know why because you've never experienced it before. But my life is reality and dreams. And then I wake up to COVID-19 where I'm not traveling. I'm not in a hotel. I'm not walking through a shopping mall or down a major industrial city or a lot of people being around and a lot of people. So the past, you know, eight months have changed the past 10 years in this massive way. I, and I try not to be pessimistic about this. I think there's a, a very um, opportunistic opportunity here. But I almost do feel when people say 10 years that we've almost erased 10 years of growth in the past eight months, which scares me tremendously. So from that perspective, it's changed a lot. If I can zoom out beyond that, I mean, my life has also changed dramatically. I was running a digital marketing agency that we had a successful exit with, with a large public company called WPP, which we closed over six years ago. It's been two years since I've exited the business that I created that I spent over 15 years running with three business partners. I've moved on to become a more active investor and advisor. I was a professional speaker doing 60 to 70 plus events every year all over the world, which now I do most of those through Zoom, like we're doing this now. Um, I've got children in the span of a decade that have been created and are growing. (laughs) So, you know, 10 years ago, I think I only had one. Now I've got more. Everything changes. Everything changes all the time, down to doing a podcast, down to writing, down to communicating, down to how I think about businesses, the economy. It's uh, everything. What hasn't changed in 10 years? I mean, maybe people buying stuff. Okay. (laughs) Maybe that hasn't changed in 10 years. Um, But I do feel like everything's changed. Even buying consumption habits. Habits. Yeah. Yes. Habits, yes. Buying, no. I mean, people buy, they buy stuff. But our buying habits and behaviors for sure have changed. I and mean, it's the crux of what I speak about. The crux of what I talk about is not Netflix and streaming. It's the fact that consumers will now pay a small monthly fee for access to an entire library. So if they're doing it for that, where is that for you? What, what might be those libraries that you could offer or create And you're seeing that in things like financial institutions offering subscription services every month instead of having these weird fees that are sort of random and all over the place. I just said sort of there Um, to, you know, small music retailers that are building these online channels to show people more about the guitar, whether it's instruction or documentary based content that they're charging monthly fees for. So you're right that that. That, it, that has changed dramatically. Consumer and they're buying, I mean, just think about the past eight months. We went from a world where e-commerce was 15% of all commerce, shot past 30 to 40s and 50s in certain components and regions uh, at time. It'll probably go back not to 15, but this idea of 30% of all commerce, of all e-commerce, 30% of e-commerce, of, of all commerce happening was genuinely this 30-30 perspective that'll happen by 2030. And we, we rocked past that in a couple months in, in 2020. That creates big changes. So for my friends in companies like Shopify, they wind up becoming 800-pound gorillas. They wind up becoming dramatic competitors in a different way to companies like Amazon. They wind up inspiring people to move from employment to entrepreneurship. All of these have macro implications on our little micro worlds
0: you and i aren't sociologists or economists trained but it's quite evident that there's a change in the way people are viewing even city dwelling oh. not to mention the retail high street yeah. so the existence of shops will the shopkeepers want to come back and tend a shop if you know where's the economic model for them if 30 40% is going to be off online and by the way, will people have enough purchasing power when we come out of this like in the past? So mm. let's, So speaking of change, Mitch, I wanted mm. to ask you to comment a clip that came from our very my very first rustic production of a podcast. It's in from it's a 14-second clip, and you were discussing transformation. If you can roll the clip.
1: It has to be a cultural imperative from within, that, that the people within the society and communities make a decision that says, you know, if we keep going about things the way we're going about them, the world's going to pass us by. Hmm. Was that just recorded now or was that from 10 years ago? <laughs> <laughs> Hence my choice.
0: Yeah. What, what do you think of that? And have we moved along? Still there.
1: Still there. The premise of Six Pixels of Separation, the, the blog, which was originally just the Twist Image blog, which was the name of my agency. And then the book, Six Pixels of Separation, was a great book. A world where we're interconnected and everyone's connected, and you need to connect your business to everybody. And to hear that clip as we sit here, it's just people talk about this moment as the Great Depression. And I call it the Great Compression. It's the Great Compression. So this moment in time where we have everybody from K and 1 all the way up to our elder list, uh, elderly of elderlists to who you know we're like sliding iPhones underneath their elder care homes so that they could FaceTime because of what happened here in isolation lockdown but we have a fully digitized group and a fully digitized economy we have a small market that we shop at for fresh fruits and veg down the street and when they they had to close then they were doing phone orders and emails and it was a couple of weeks they were on Shopify. <laughs> like they were just like, you know, business you would never expect to have to deal with this full on digitization to adapt and to, to have business. So I'm happy to hear that clip because it still feels that way, but it feels more pressing. It feels more now. It feels more in the future, which is sort of what that clip was saying to, are you today? So it kind of makes me proud and not slightly embarrassed. I thought I'd be embarrassed. So thank you. (laughs) Fun. Well, I have a second clip from the second
0: interview we did. And this time you were commenting on communication style. We were looking at uh, from a societal, there's bigger picture type communications, but also from a company. And you made a, I found, a most interesting comment. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean,
1: a lot of it, you know, a lot of my sort of thinking around that it was derived from WikiLeaks, believe it or not. Not from a, a legal standpoint, like, you know, my legal feelings about WikiLeaks are very different than my philosophical ones. And my philosophical thoughts of WikiLeaks are that primarily we live in a world where businesses and government have made every single attempt to keep every single thing private and secret for no real reason. And so the initial posture that people have is how do you hack that? And how do you figure out like why they're doing you know, it? If- hmm. Yeah, here we are again, right? We're sitting here at a moment in time when the Richards Group, which is one of the largest independent ad agencies in the world, had their founder, 88 year old young man, step aside because of comments he made in an internal review about a client that he's worked on forever, about um, an ethnic group. He actually said, I think his line was this is maybe too black, I think is what he said in terms of the creative. Uh, got called out for it and because he's not a public company, swiftly fired himself to save this agency, which has lost hundreds of millions of dollars consequently in other clients and, and that lead client, which I think was Motel 6. Um, and yeah, it is it is a truth. It is, it is very much a truth and a reality. Again, I do a morning hit on radio that I just did this morning, and we were talking about how Google has been allowing certain law enforcement organizations to do these keyword warrants, which isn't, I think Minter's guilty of something, let's look at his keywords, it's, can you give us all the keyword searches done with the IPs associated to it on this phrase, and then the police parsing through this, so in theory, you or I could be suspects in something, because our kids typed something, or we typed something, and they typed something, and that combination created some kind of trigger. And you wonder what at what at what price transparency transparency seemed like a really good idea back then, because there were so many black boxes and things we couldn't right. see and didn't have access to, and now where we see everything and anybody can say anything on top of anyone and have it be guessed second guessed or not, have it be founded or unfounded. Have the punishment fit the crime or have there be no punishment or crime but have it be judged in in the open court of, of Facebook? what I'd said on the radio this morning was everything you say can and will be used against you in the court of law and public opinion because this stuff is all public so it's be it, I mean it's a good dovetail into all the stuff we've been talking about to date this, level of comfort. I used to jokingly, not jokingly, but honestly tell my business partners that I would prefer if there was always someone else present in the room, (laughs) almost like a a doctor always wants the nurse present. Call me paranoid, but I have a public life and it's very easy to accuse and take down and very hard to defend. And I don't have a ton of empathy for those who are found guilty and have been wrong or done things that are wrong and required to be called out. But I also do have a lot of empathy for those who don't get a, the same amount of attention as they do on an accusation that proves to be unfounded or mistake.
0: Mm, completely. I completely. Mean, we have to, tra- we have to Travis, deal with that. That's right. Oh, Travis Kalanick, uh, he seemed to have transgressed widely and almost, you know, self-avowedly on the other hand taking something out of context, which is what a lot of, uh, some, you know, a lot of times can happen, then there's no, the intention is stripped out and the words by themselves. Yeah. You use the word black, but it's a black box. And, and, and if you can't put that into a context, then you can't justify it or even talk to the intention and then you get screamed and called out for it.
1: Yeah. I, I did a podcast the other day that hasn't been published with, um, an author who's, who's written a lot about diversity and inclusion. And we were talking about, I was talking rather about my blind spots. And she pointed out how, you know, that can be a trigger or microaggression against people who are blind. And I sat there realizing that my grandfather was blind and it was very impacting on me. And I hadn't realized that that phrase might be a trigger that way. And That was a a great teachable moment where I I thanked the person and have subsequently tried to stop using that word (laughs) because I now understand that for people who have a visual impairment, that might be really terrible, like a real offense. And I don't want to have the content diverted by the saying. So, the WikiLeaks clip that you played is interesting if you also consider it in the construct of i'm going to guess that happened before edward snowden did it not mm-hmm. or was it after yeah we ca- i'm canadian i don't i don't really know what you are minter i know you lived here i is <laughs> a man international man of mystery I, i'm a mutt uh, yeah, yeah you're a mutt um you know our, our perspective as canadians and how we operate is very different than the divisiveness that you feel in the States towards a character like Edward Snowden and what he did. But it is coming out that a lot of the things that he had uncovered are, are, are systemic issues within the operations of government, law enforcement, and security. So where, where does one sit on this? Every issue is contentious. Every issue is scary. Every issue we walk around with on, on eggshells because we don't want that information to be misconstrued. So transparency is great. Transparency is important. But boy, did WikiLeaks lead to an avalanche of our, of our understanding of what it means to be connected and open.
0: Mm. Transparency, again, nuance, I think, is key. <sighs> One of the other questions I had for you, Mitch, and it was relating back to your initial statement about Black Lives Matter and it can be any number of other topics. What's your position on a company or brand taking or not a political stance?
1: I I remember when was it Chick Fil A? If it was Chick Fil A, they they got into a lot of a lot of issues around LGBT plus, and I was listening at the time to Howard Stern, and he made some comment like. I don't understand. Let's just shut up and sell chicken. Like, what are you doing? Everyone Mm -hmm. loves their chicken, doing great on the chicken, sell your chicken. I know that when I blogged and podcasted as somebody who was part of an organization independently owned and then owned by a larger public entity, I would never mention even brands. So if I was going to be, let's say dumping on Walmart, which was a client of mine, I would have never done it. I probably would have taken the story as I did switch the industry and just mentioned, you know, the industry or what had happened in a way that wouldn't expose the brand. And I was sensitive to that because I wanted to ensure that we would never be in a position where we couldn't have a client or an individual work with us because of something I'd said. Mm-hmm. I say something about Walmart. Uh, one of my best friends is a chief marketing officer who then becomes the chief marketing officer at Walmart and opts to not use us because she rightfully has seen me take cracks at Walmart. So when we talk about these things, I am, I feel like an old fogey. I feel like we should not talk about politics and religion, and things like that, if we can. But then I see the work of companies like Patagonia, and I get very inspired. And I love the fact that they are, you know, just unabashed about where they stand and what they want and what is right. And part of me longs to be that person. And then part of me still longs to be in a world where you can say things without having to call out a specific business. Brands that do this need to be very strategic in how they do this, they need to be very comfortable with what the outcome is. And there are many brands where the ultimate goal isn't to sell more stuff. And that's great. You just have to decide who you want to be. But I have no issue with brands that don't express their political stance. I think that that's fair. All's fair in love and capitalism. So you having run
0: a a good-sized business, the area that my mind goes to is the employee on the one hand you have customers you're trying to keep loyal, keep them buying, so it's, you know from your products or services and whatever. On the other hand you have employees and there's an issue of engagement that is pretty widespreadly poor in most companies. If as an employee the employee looks up and sees that company A is saying nothing about a sensitive or important topic to me, and maybe, obviously, not just to me, but my community or something. It can't be just one individual, a rogue individual. Then acquiescence would be the indictment potentially, yeah. and therefore I'm disengaging from my work with this company because they don't say anything. That must mean they believe, like you mentioned, actually in that con- in that conversation we had back in 2011 in the Noisy Cafe, you actually said, if if you don't say anything, you're hiding.
1: Correct. Yeah. Silence is no longer golden. One of the things that it reminds is when you're just telling me this anecdote, it reminded me that I was advising an, an organization where the CEO gave me a call and she was very concerned because during the entire Me Too movement, the company had not put out any form of statement or support of it. And she had a handful of employees that were forcefully demanding it by saying nothing. It's as if you're agreeing with all this. And the CEO was to a certain degree saying, we've never made a political statement. There's never been our social statement. There's never been an accusation within our organization of an individual. By creating one in support of, it's bringing attention and light to it, it feels disingenuous, was her thought. And it became a very philosophical conversation, clearly. Um, And I don't know where it ended. I don't know if they moved forward with the statement or not. But what you were talking about reminds me of that, where that feeling of if we say nothing, it's as if we agree with it. Is that true? I mean, do we believe that? Do we believe that, if, that if, if not everybody puts the blackened out Instagram post in support of Black Lives Matter, that they in fact are part of the problem, not the solution? Do we know what their philanthropic history has been, the work they've done with shelters, supporting uh, women who are abused, uh, supporting children of, of broken families? Do we know Or do we quickly just make an assumption because we're following the feed? And these are are very, very difficult conversations that have no right or wrong answer, really. Because the other side of it is, you know, my comment to her was, make the statement. And she kind of balked at me. But my answer back was, there's going to be 20 other posts in the day that you're going to post. And there's a million other posts that everyone, like, it does become a wash in the sea of posts where nobody looks back and goes, hold on a second, Minter, you didn't, you didn't check that box. Mitch did. Okay. Maybe at a small scale, there is that, but because of the volume of the noise, the other thing is it's easy to kind of just do it to just do it and you've done it. And there's 15 other posts there are talking about your sales and your new product and the new person you hired and whatever. I'm not trying to diminish it, but it is the reality of it. How many people have continued to black out their Instagram posts or have traded it for a flag of Armenia or have traded it for, and I'm not saying every movement isn't important. These are critical core parts of how we're going to develop as a society and culture. But sometimes we painstakingly try to work over areas that can be resolved in a pretty quick way that satiates that group, while at the same time, maintaining what you're trying to do overall as a leader. It's also very difficult to be a leader. You know, it's very difficult to, to be that leader. It's easy to say it as an employee. It's difficult to be the leader.
0: Way oh, amen to that, Mitch. Yeah. Um, lots of things I could say about that. One being that I was called out for not having done a hashtag Black Lives Matter on my Twitter feed. And to your point, we mentioned earlier, there was no way for me in 280 characters to be able to comment back in a, such a way that a white male would be justifiable out of context. Uh, that's what it was, and and you know, this lady had no idea that my best friend, I say, was black because he killed himself. Um, but let's say that I, I have, you know, I could, I, I feel like can quite justify my belief in in the topic but i don't feel like i needed to put a hashtag out there and it didn't feel like it was warranting that so at the same time you want to be strategic you know do what matters speak about the things you really care about but at the same time just put out a hashtag just because that will pacify the aggressors
1: whoever they are and how right how minor they might be and I didn't know that that happened to you, Minder, because I might not have been on Twitter for three days. Imagine that. Huh.
0: Yes, thank goodness for social media. So we don't have time as if, for- as if,
1: But I mean, as if your customer is just constantly following your feed yeah. or cares. I mean, this is the other side that I'm constantly dealing with in conversation. Do they really care? Will they remember? Is it important? And are you doing it as a substantive way to move your culture and who you are forward? Or are you doing it to satiate? And you have to do what's right for you with the knowledge of you because nobody really knows the individuals. It's it's all supposition for, for the most part.
0: Hmm. So thank goodness, there's a diarrhea of social media out there. I did have another clip that was actually on social media marketing, oh. how apropos, but I do have a much more important question before we finish up, which is what's your opinion
1: on regulating and breaking up the big tech companies? I don't, It's clear that something has to happen when you have an S&P that is primarily four or five companies occupying almost 30% of it. And you have people like Professor Galloway essentially saying we have a handful of unregulated monopolies that had you invested in in January of 2020 to now you would have had 20 plus percentage points of gain. There is a massive level of inequity. If anything, COVID has just really shown us how much inequity there is. Does it need regulation? It needs regulation. Does it need government involvement? It needs government involvement. Do I have confidence when I watch these governments have conversations with these leaders? No, I lose my confidence there. And I also wonder what a broken up system looks like. Take Amazon, for example. We break up Amazon. Basically, the people who've invested in it just do better. They're holding multiple stocks and multiple independent companies that are all doing fantastic. How do you break it up? And they've got Amazon Web Services, they've got Amazon Retail, they've got uh, Whole Foods. How do you what is breaking it up even look like? And anytime I have this conversation with people who are adamant about it, and I am as well, and I ask those questions, what does this look like? Nobody knows. Nobody's got great answers for how to make this fairer as fair as I think a tougher word, but fairer. And I don't have the answer to it either, and that scares me even more. This is uh, an unprecedented time, and I hate that word, not just because of the pandemic, but because of this reality of individuals making billions of dollars, a handful of them, in this complete economic breakdown. Due due to the pandemic, we'll see what happens at the end of this. It's just mind-boggling. So how do we, but how do we fix this? So the question isn't, should we fix it? Yes, of course we should fix it. How do we fix it? I, I have not seen many good answers and I read a lot. Well put.
0: Mitch, on these interesting words, uh, catch you in another 10 years, right? Uh, no, no, no. We'll make sure it's not another nice 10 years. of you. Year. Exactly, we'll make sure it's well before that. Um, Tell us, uh, Mitch, how someone can catch up with what you're up to, um, follow you, listen to your podcast, all the good stuff for the show notes.
1: I'm quite specific about everything I create. So if you just go to sixpixels.com, you will see chronologically almost anything and everything I either put out and or am a guest on so that I have this living, breathing document that I could either one day go back to or my children can go back and look back and go, he actually did a whole bunch of stuff, this guy,
0: <laughs> who seemed to I, just be
1: upstairs in his study all the time.
0: Not meaning to be a plug for, an uh, un- unwanted plug, but a friend of mine just created a site called With Grace, which is designed to be a repository of your legacy. So not just what you've written and produced, but also all your passwords, so someone knows where to go there. Videos that could last beyond you that are specifically for when you are beyond it, if you will. Cool. uh i l uh, mitch thanks for coming on the show thanks for being such a wonderful guest and friend and um, great supporter of yours and i encourage everybody to go check out your podcast i am after 700 and god knows how many more episodes i am a constant fan thanks a lot mitch
1: well i'm looking forward to having a coffee with you in person very soon i hope
0: <laughs> you bet say thanks a lot Mike. Bye-bye, mitch